Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. If you have a creative endeavor and you want to see how the Cleveland Public Library can help, visit cpl.org. Again, that's cpl.org. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting service. We are on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anything you can think of. And when you do that, be sure to rate and review us. When you do that, it uh, helps other people find this show, and we're always uh, trying to bestow our knowledge onto others. And if you have any feedback about this show or you want to recommend a guest, go ahead and send me an email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters... We don't have a guest. We're just going to talk to you for a little bit. Yeah. This is going to be a, a mini-sode. We've, we've had a lot going on basically over the past month since we did the last mini-sode. So we thought we would get everybody caught up. And I guess the place to start is uh, naturally the Indians losing. Or the Astros winning, depending on how you want to look at it. Now let's go ahead and start with the governor's race. Uh, we are finally done with the three gubernatorial debates. They were... I guess the first one might have been a little surprising, and the two that followed were basically exactly the same as the first one, which isn't the most surprising like, in the world. Like the Die Hard movies, kind of? Yeah, Die Hard 2 was good, though. I think Die Hard 2, I don't know if it improved on the original, but it was good and original in its own way. You know, the planes. There's some plot holes there, because they could have just landed in Baltimore. It was only about 45 minutes away. Yeah, this is more akin to, say, you know, the, the first debate was the uh, original Tim Burton Batman and then everyone that followed was kind of like, you know, Batman Returns. And then finally you just got to Batman Forever. Right. You guys got to give me some references that I know because I don't know any of those references. That's okay. Um, th- so th- uh, the first debate was Taylor Swift's 1989. Okay. The second and third debate were Taylor Swift's latest album. Oh. So. Got it. I yeah. think I'm making yeah. irrelevant Yeah, yeah. No, there, I, so. I got it. I understand. So. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I've been covering the governor's race for quite a while now, and I will say the first debate was kind of surprising. You had Richard Cordray really come out. What sport analogies are we going to use today? I think golf is probably appropriate. You had Rich Cordray come out and really drive the ball a thousand yards. And that's I don't golf, so we're just going to go back to boxing. Came out swinging. Uh, you know, really landed some attacks. Dewine was, um, you know, equally I would say aggressive. Um, and then the two that followed were just you know. Last two, same as the first, but I think it did sort of set the tone for the race that we're going to have going forward. Uh, these two guys are going to be slugging it out basically over health care and crime. Yeah, I know that. I kind of just viewing it as a reporter anyways, because that's what you do when you watch stuff and you happen to be a reporter. Um, the first debate was really pleasantly surprising in that kind of the takeaway was pretty clear. There's a clear contrast between the candidates. They had clear um, differing approaches and stuff like that. So... That was great. And then, like you said, it seems like they kind of fell into their sort of uh, cruise control in the second and third because they kind of knew what the other side was going to do and didn't really deviate from that again. But, yeah, you know, like we lived through it. We we have the, the, the important part is the friends we made along the way and the stories we have to tell now. Right. So, like, for somebody who wasn't able, unfortunately, to catch all three debates or even the first debate, like you talked about how, you know, they drew distinction sort of in their leadership skills maybe or the way that they would approach the job how would you describe that well i would say it was actually it was more about the issues that they were really trying to like uh, get that clear dividing line you know cordray has been hammering health care and especially pre-existing conditions um you know uh 
Mike DeWine, what, like his first day as attorney general, basically sued to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which includes the largest protections for pre-existing conditions that had ever been in existence. Uh, Mike DeWine, meanwhile, wants everybody to know that he's the elder statesman in the room and he's been around for years and he's the tough on crime guy and Cordray's support of the uh, issue one ballot initiative that would um, basically, it, it seeks to lower uh, penalties for low level drug offenders and get them into drug treatment. He wants people to know that it's reckless and uh, the way that he views the law, it would let drug dealers basically go free. Um, not totally dissimilar from other races where you've seen Republicans really hammer crime. Yeah, it's like the 1990s coming back again. I mean, you look at the 2017 Virginia governor's race. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, was, if, you know, if you want to make a more contemporary reference. I sure. guess, you know, we're, we're in throwback mode here. Um, I will say that we did have an editorial board meeting between the two in this time. Well, we are not on the editorial board, but I was in the editorial board. And, um, you know, Cordray mentioned DeWine's rape kit ads, which were, have basically said that he would, uh, you know, let rapists or he let rapists roam free. And, um, you know, also has the issue one ads where he's saying oh, drug dealers are going to be running the streets now and everybody's going to be addicted to fentanyl or something. And um, he called them Willie Horton-esque. And I don't think DeWine took uh, took very kindly to that. He was he was pretty angry. I think he uh, I think he's trying to play it like he's not trying to talk about. I don't want to call it a wedge issue. Crime's a big issue, but he's not. Tr he's trying to kind of drive that wedge in there. And I think he was a little upset about that. And by the way, what he just said here has been supplemented by a relentless campaign that dishonors the state that is Willie Hortoning this issue. To, oh, to that is so disgusting. That is exactly what Richard, you're, you're doing. Richard, you're putting lies you're putting, up on TV putting, about me every single day. So my, you, ought, you know, you just really need to get off it. My, please. Just talk about issue one. Talk about issue one. I will talk about issue one. And if you'll stop interrupting me, I also want to talk about the tone of the Willie Horton ads in this campaign. That's exactly what it is. You don't like to be called out on it, but that's what it is. Are, are you you're telling me, Richard, about, that we're not going to let me, out child me, it's pornographers? My it's my turn. Can, can okay. they get out, Richard? It's my Tell turn. Me, can they get out? It's my turn. On your program, okay. can they get out child it's, pornographers? It's my turn. He's, he's Why ad, would you want them on ad, the street His ads say that we are going to flood the state with drug dealers. Let me tell you. They get out early. Flash, we already have flooded the state with drug dealers on Mike DeWine's watch. The substance abuse monitoring report said law enforcement has reported that drug cartels have flooded the state with fentanyl. That's what's happened. It's happened. And you want last, more fentanyl? Excuse me. More if fentanyl. If, if you'll allow me to finish, Mike, and stop interrupting, because you can't actually prosecute this case very well when we're face to face. All right. I think my least favorite thing about the debate is kind of like this idea that, oh, whatever problem you can name, Republicans are responsible. But then DeWine kind of responds because Cordray held the job before him. Like, oh, well, uh, you know, it wasn't us. It was Democrats back in 2010. So it's this kind of like circular argument about like who's more to blame for the problem. And like my eyes just glaze over and it's just horrible. So uh, I think that was like fairly kept to a minimum during the debate, but it did kind of bubble up here and there. You know, it's interesting. I, I wrote a piece um, a couple days ago about how, at face value, this should be a very boring race, you know, um, just given DeWine and Cordray's kind of um, entertainment value, so to speak. They're not going to be doing any kind of crazy antics on the campaign trail. Um, but it really is interesting in that it is old school and is kind of stuck to um, really a lot of the politics um, or the policies. Um, regardless of what you think about issue one, like, you know, people are of two mindsets on there. Um, the only thing that's really kind of um, strayed into that, like, 
you know, Democrats are the worst uh, thing in the world is the rape kits ad. But again, I think that speaks to like job performance. Um, yeah. As the New York Times might say, it was almost a polite kind of debate. You mean the, that New York publication? Oh, yeah, that New York publication. We'll get to that at the end. Um, so, yeah, going forward, I mean, I guess what everyone can expect is that Cordray and DeWine are going to basically keep attacking each other nonstop. And if you're watching Sunday football, expect, uh, I don't know, how many, how many ads do you think you get a day during a game? I watch uh, my games online, so I actually haven't gotten any, and I'm really pleased with that. Yeah, I, uh, I've been doing that too, but when I've caught the Browns games on CBS, it's usually get about 10 each probably. It's quite a few. All right, well, we've got another race that is uh, coming up and maybe isn't as exciting as the governor's race, but I don't think it's any less consequential. That is the Senate race. So while we are done with governor's debates, um, I guess we're just now starting Senate debates, aren't we, Andrew? Yeah, it's the first Senate debate uh, is going to be on Sunday. It's going to be here in Cleveland, just like the governor's debate was earlier this week. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's an opportunity for Jim Renacci to actually kind of engage Sherrod Brown a little bit more directly. I, I think that uh, he has the most to, to gain here just by definition because he's losing the race, you know, pretty solidly at this point and has really struggled to gain traction. Um, uh, I don't want to, this is going to be out of date by the time this publishes, but, you know, we're hearing that Renacci is actually running his first TV ads of the general election cycle, which given that it's what the second third week of october now it's like not it's not super optimal that that's just the case right now but um if there's going to be a point where renacy might actually get some uh good press if he has a good debate performance if his ads kind of like catch on a little bit you know maybe he'll get a bump but uh, it was really striking i mean um uh you know maybe we'll include the the link to this in the show notes but maybe like a week ago i actually got a bunch of ohio republicans to pretty openly criticize renacy's campaigning or his lack thereof and so his uh his campaign's taking on water and so um like i said this this weekend maybe will be a chance for him to turn that around a little bit yeah he does seem to be running this tortoise and hare approach or something whereas sherrod brown basically i think it was just days after the primary election came up and has been on tv ever since uh Jim Renacci seems to be taking the tortoise approach and uh, thinking that slow and steady wins the race. Is that where we're going with the strategy there? Well, I mean, he's not he's not discussing his strategy, but he believes he has the resources <laughs> he needs to win. There was a piece, uh, you know, discussing, among other things, that we'll get to his $4 million loan to himself and if he's actually going to spend that money. And he doesn't seem... I don't know. What did you think? I can't read Jim Renacci's mind, and he won't tell us. I know that... Um, I've talked to people who have talked to him who want to know the same thing. Uh, so I guess I don't have a definitive answer on that. Uh, like, like I said, he does have these ads coming out now, and I'm kind of curious at the time of this recording, I don't know if it's consequential, if it's like a serious amount of money that he's putting behind it. But I do think that when Renacy got in the race, he expected that some of the millions of dollars that Josh Mandel, the former Senate candidate who dropped out and gave him the opening, that some of the money that Mandel got was going to somehow make it to his way to Renacy, whether it was through direct contributions or maybe an OPAC or maybe Mandel would give the money back and those donors would give it to Renacy. Didn't happen. You know, Mandel still has something like $3 million in the bank, even though he's ostensibly is not running for anything right now. Um, and then I think he was expecting some of the national groups that like uh, Crossroads GPS, like Americans for Prosperity, like the Senate Leadership Fund or groups that are aligned with the Koch brothers and with Carl Rove and with uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, basically have completely stood out of Ohio. So I think, you know, maybe he thought he'd have like a little bit of an easier road. Um, didn't happen. And, uh, but yeah, so here we are. It's It's been kind of weird. It's almost like 
not covering a Senate race just because sort of the, the traditional things that you look at just are kind of really not present. From a purely competitive standpoint, I don't know what you think about this. Does What's the message it sends if he doesn't spend the money that he said he was willing to put up for his race? Is there a message that it sends? Or I know if I were a donor and I'd be giving him money based on the representation that he had a certain amount of resources and that he's going to mount a certain type of campaign, I'd be mad that it's taken this long that and he still hasn't done it. I mean, the sort of like, uh, Sherrod's been running ads since like May, but you know, if you're running this kind of like dark horse race, the kind of traditional begin of the electoral season was is, is Labor Day, or that's when things kind of ramp up. And you know, Renacy waited for a full month after that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, like I said, I can't read Renacy's mind, but I would think that. Uh, to the extent that there's a perception that he's uh, reluctant to spend his own money, it doesn't necessarily make a strong statement as far as how, how, how he's uh, willing he is to invest in himself. It doesn't seem to reflect very well on the, uh, you know, the Republican Party who kind of who banded together and said, this is our guy as soon as Josh Mandel dropped out. Um, I, I don't know. Do you think there's it seems to me that people would have to hesitate about the, you know, the brain trust over there if they thought that this was the guy he's the one who's going to be able to run up against uh sherrod brown and knock him off in a state that trump won by eight points and everything we've seen has sherrod brown basically up double digits yeah i think it was a tough tough spot i mean josh mandel dropped out pretty close you know i mean granted they did have time to kind of get something up and running and i think you look at renacy he's rich and he could definitely fund his campaign if he chose but um easy for me to say right like but regardless uh there was a path to victory and I still, I'm not completely writing it off just because weirder things have happened. But, um, you know, uh, Renacy has a legitimate complaint that he hasn't gotten the outside support that maybe you might expect for a, a race like his. I think Republicans have a legitimate complaint that Renacy hasn't spent the money in a way that would kind of lend itself to a viable campaign effort. And meanwhile, Sherrod Brown, I'm sure is very happy how things have turned out. And he's, you know, we, uh, Cleveland.com, the plane dealer endorsed him and, uh, our lead editorial writer on that, wrote that Sherrod Brown must have been born under a lucky star or something because really you know he got elected in 2006 to the Senate which was a wave year for Democrats he got reelected in 2012 when Barack Obama helped carry the state and now he's looks like he's gonna win pretty comfortably even though it's a political climate in Ohio that seems mismatched with the kind of uh, elected official that he is so yeah it's just it's kind of weird it seems like it's just been almost like gaff after gaff there's there's been one embarrassing story after another and it really just hasn't seemed like a lively campaign. I mean, you covered, um, you know, probably one of the more embarrassing stories of the race. I don't know if you want to talk about it at all. So uh, there was a story. Uh, I didn't actually break the story. The Columbus Dispatch did that. Renacy has been flying around the state in a private plane that's owned by a strip club owner. He owns the Peekaboo and Bugaboo lounges, respectively, in Cleveland. And you hear a private plane and you think like a Learjet and obviously I think the Brown campaign is kind of happy to kind of stoke those connotations. It's, it's more like the plane that the guy who blew up the spaceships in independence day was flying. It's, it's like a crop duster. It's a Cessna, like single engine fixed wing kind of plane. Um, so the follow-up on that was after the dispatch ran that story, which was earlier this month, uh, a week later, which was uh, Tuesday. I think it's the third. Renacy uh, took the plane down to Scioto County to meet with, uh, he went there for a Republican event in Portsmouth, but he also first met with a bunch of faith leaders, quote unquote. And so the story came out that Renacy defends taking strip club owners plane to meeting with faith leaders, which is obviously a, a strange headline, uh, to say the least. Let's play a clip from that interview. So plane records show that you were going to a family values thing down in, like, I think it was Scioto County. 
um, you know, honest strip club owners praying. Is, is that contradictory to you at all? Again, uh, going after a volunteer and, and talking about my travel, I'm not going to get into that. I, I have safety issues about traveling. I'm going to make sure that I keep my travel records uh, quiet because I don't need all the things that are occurring in Washington right now. So, again, I'm not going to comment on travel. Uh, but, again, I, I uh, shame on even you for talking about a volunteer. That's exactly what you're doing. This is a volunteer in a campaign. I met him. I mean, you don't, you don't think it's slightly contradictory to go to a family values conference well, on if, a strip club owner's you, plane? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm going with a volunteer, and, and nobody's confirmed anything about travel with him or whatever. So, uh, again, sad. it's so sad that we're worried about a, my travel, which is legal. Everything's legal. You're worried about my travel, but you won't report on Sherry Brown's multiple abuses over three and a half years. Well, the question is more about is it contradictory to go, you know, to, to claim this like family values sort of image while you're riding on a strip club owner's plane. Again, you're going after a volunteer. I'm asking you if well, you think it is. I, I don't again, care about him and his a, plane and well, his Well, he's a volunteer who I don't, I met during this campaign. He's asked to volunteer for me. I'm not going to vet volunteers and I'm not going to vet the press's uh, uh, looking at volunteers again. It's sad that the press is talking about a volunteer instead of bringing up, you know, when you talk about the three and a half years of, of abuse and affidavits that most people don't know about as I travel the state, that's what you should be talking about. Would you knowingly ride on a strip club owner's plane to a family values conference? Again, as I've told you all along, if you're, if you're going to talk about volunteers, that's one thing. I'm asking you if you. Well, I just do told it. you. It's a, he's a volunteer. He's a, a good man who came to me and asked me to volunteer, asked to volunteer for me, and uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna belittle the conversation by talking about a volunteer. It's ridiculous that we're even talking about this. So Renacy's contesting that he was defending it. Um, he pretty clearly was. You know, Seth, who actually conducted the interview, asked him four or five times, and. He implicitly said while well, I was traveling with a volunteer, his point was that he thought it was off limits that this, the press would focus on this plane belonging to a campaign volunteer at all. Um, and, uh, you know, so the New York Times actually wrote about it as like an example of weird political news. And they cited an Ohio news site, which, you know, like that New York publication is OK. Yeah, it's it's their right to, you know, I'm glad that they read. But I see something like that. And, you know, that's something that I feel like you would expect from a a rookie politician who you know doesn't necessarily think about optics or anything you know jim renacy will talk about career politicians and his disdain for career politicians he's been running for election for years now though i i feel like he had to know that the optics of that should it get out weren't going to be good i mean you can't think that it's going to be a positive look if you're flying in a strip club owner's plane to a family values conference especially when you've been touting on the campaign trail how family values you are yeah i don't so strip club owners and family values can't can't coexist seth is that what you're saying that's not at all what i'm saying <laughs> and you know that's, that's interesting though because when i was interviewing uh congressman renacy he he made it seem like i was attacking the owner and i don't i don't think any of us were really judging what he does for his business it's perfectly legal i think it's got more to do with him going to places like um, you know, the Citizens for Community Values Forum and saying, you know, what a man of God he is and uh, talking about 
basically all his family values credentials, I don't think you're going to find a whole lot of the traditional family values in a strip club called the Bugaboo. Yeah, well, you know, Donald Trump is president and there's all the stuff that goes along with him. So, I, you know, I think that ship has kind of sailed and it's I think it's less about uh, voters are going to look at this. I mean, some certainly would be turned off and they're not going to give somebody like like Renee see the benefit of the doubt. They might be for somebody like Trump who they feel like they know a little bit better because of his, you know, his time on TV and kind of his image and all that stuff. But it's definitely a distraction. And I think to your point earlier, uh, the way that you avoid the story is you just, you know, get in a car or I guess if you have to charter a plane, find another plane, you know, I mean, there's just any number of ways to get to Portsmouth, Ohio that don't involve flying on this particular plane. And it's silly. It's just a silly story. I mean, it's an interesting thought exercise. Like, I haven't, I, maybe I'm wrong, I haven't really seen the, uh, you know, Sherrod Brown's people really, like, seize on it and throw it out there in advertising they're, they're or anything. They're just letting it kind of play yeah. itself out, you know? But I mean, <laughs> let's... Isn't, let... isn't Sherrod Brown currently running ads about his dog right now? That's where Sherrod Brown yeah, is? Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm not really, it's, it's like... Uh, the kind of it's the kind of ad that you run when you're like kind of cruising to when victory. You're 16 it's like, oh, like here's polls. my dog. Like, how cute is it? You know, yeah. like whatever. So, what do you think we're going to see in the debate this weekend? What's what's the hot take that we need to watch for? I think Sherrod Brown. You know, I'm sure that they've prepared him to not get riled up when Jim Renacci inevitably brings up his divorce and the allegations that were in his divorce filings in the 1980s. Um, I think that Renacci is gonna try really hard just to get his name out there and and maybe you know call attention to some of the stuff that that Sherrod's done that's maybe doesn't play well you know immigration you know Sherrod voted on um basically helped block a bill that would have cut off funding to sanctuary cities I've noticed that he's kind of avoided that issue um you know there's some other things that kind of fall under that category um and I think you know Sherrod's just gonna try to seem like he's above it all um you know he's very savvy at debating he doesn't say anything he doesn't want to say so i would not expect sherry to make any mistakes and basically um you know i think he's going to present himself as being above it all you know seem senatorial and you know i don't know maybe he's warming up for some presidential debates down the road i mean i think that's always i'm I'm taking that as a serious possibility now even though sherry claims that he's not interested is it a better debate than the first governor's debate it's you know it's, it's like children you can't pick which one you love the most <laughs> well like in my opinion right it it feels like this debate has less of a chance of really making any sort of significant change obviously because Sherrod is leading so heavily at this point whereas from what I'm hearing from you guys in the gubernatorial race I mean things are, are fairly evenly paced and you know if there was some sort of real meaningful exchange that one guy looks better than the other then that could maybe you know affect the race or tip the race the the Sherrod Brown Jim Renacci race you know seems very sort of clear cut at this point so I think I, I don't know like maybe it will be the debate of the year or of the century who knows the, but from what you're saying i don't know yeah I, I generally kind of you know challenge people to not think about debates in terms of who wins and who loses the debate mm -hmm. i don't think voters care like it's not like they're grading a speech class or something like that um i think that unless renacy makes a huge gaffe which is possible um i think it's a win for him in the sense that he's just going to get his name out there and It'll provide him with an opportunity to um, try to, you know, make his case and, and contrast himself on the issues. So, I mean, absent, like I said, a gaffe, I think that's sort of like the upshot for this whole thing. 
Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So speaking of the Senate, one big issue that has, you know, I guess come and gone since uh, the last time we did one of these minisodes was the Brett Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. I guess calling it contentious is probably uh, putting it a little lightly. I don't it's know. What toxic, do you guys think? Yeah, right. I mean, that was, that was horrible. So for those of you who haven't been following the news 24-7, uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, she is a professor in California, accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault when the two were in high school 35 years ago. That prompted several more women to come out with uh, stories about uh, Kavanaugh. And it led to a very contentious Senate hearing and a uh, re- I mean, really kind of a bloodbath of a fight over this. Uh, Mary, as part of your women's issues reporting that you've done for Cleveland.com, you kept a keen eye on all this. What, uh, you know, what did you kind of see as far as the political implications go? The political implications? Um, I think I have not seen an issue that divided um people like this since president trump was elected and i did a lot of thinking about that too and talking to people about that because the way democrats describe trump trump's election is like a bandage being ripped off and shock and horror and just immediate you know surprise um and and horror that trump was elected um for democrats this sort of Kavanaugh nomination was was kind of like it, it became clear you know after several days of news reporting and back and forth that Kavanaugh was going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court so it was sort of like this slow gnaw um in in people's guts that this was going to happen for Democrats um Democrats were horrified that he was you know pretty much going to be confirmed and Republicans were horrified that these allegations were getting any sort of credence um, so, you know, when you talk to people, I think the Democrats were not even just Democrats, but just a lot of women in general. I like, I talked to women who really didn't even tell me their political affiliations who were, uh, deeply, deeply affected by Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, you know, politically society, you know, and as a society, I think it just put two different camps more into their separate corners, right? Like it, it was um, deeply, deeply polarizing. And I think people are, th- you know, one side is thinking, how could you not believe her? How could you not, you know, listen to her and take her seriously? And the other side is thinking, well, what if it was your son? What if it was your father? What if it was your kid, you know, um, being accused? And I think people are, this is not an issue where people are kind of meh about it. People have very strong opinions. You know, I wonder if, and I mean, maybe you can shed some light on this, if 
we keep always hearing about how we're past certain um, issues in American society, you know? Um, people say, oh, nothing like this. You know, after Clarence Thomas, nothing like this could ever happen again. You know, if you go back and you look at the Clarence Thomas hearings, this was way more contentious and just, you know, divisive and whatnot. And, you know, you hear people talking about how, oh, you know, the the Me Too is, it, it's happened and we've, we've learned from it. Um, but, I mean, that, I don't know. That doesn't seem to really be the case, does it? Like, obviously, this is still happening. Well, I mean, with Clarence Thomas, right, he was accused of sexual harassment and Kavanaugh was accused of sexual assault. So mm. those are kind of very, very different accusations with different sorts of, um, you know, ramifications for, for each. Obviously, sexual assault is way more serious. I don't think the Me Too movement is over. I don't think um, it's something that's in the past. I think it's definitely something that's still gripping our country um i don't think in 1992 people could really women felt comfortable coming forward talking about sexual assault talking about um it's probably what happened worth, to them it's probably worth noting like sexual harassment wasn't even in the lexicon until really those you know those hearings right right yeah and so i think that the clarence thomas hearings had to happen um and a lot of things had to happen before we were in a place in our country where, you know, we could have this really open discussion about sexual assault. I mean, the president um, tweeted out um, kind of doubting why Christine Blase Ford came forward so late and why she didn't go to the police, you know, immediately after the assault, which triggered uh, women, a flood of women on social media under the hashtag why I didn't report. Um, to talk about why they didn't go to the authorities with their um, their uh, sexual assaults that they said that they with their sexual assaults and um, yeah I I do not think I I think this has sort of gripped the nation in a way that we haven't seen in a really long time and I don't think without sort of what happened with Clarence Thomas and what happened with the Me Too movement last fall, we, I don't think we would have been a place in, in our country where somebody like Dr. Ford would even feel comfortable coming forward. She said in her testimony there was this moment where she was like, she was talking about whether or not she was going to come forward or not, her sort of debate before she, she actually did go public. And she said, am I like standing in front of a train, you know, like is this, is this train going to keep going no matter what I say? Like do my words like have any power um and for a really long time I, I don't think any woman really felt like they could come forward and be taken seriously with claims of sexual assault it, uh, I think I talked to the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center and today only a third of sexual assaults are actually reported to um authorities or child services or you know some sort of official agency along those lines so it's it's not something that um gets a lot of attention um today i know for me i just kind of am thinking about this in kind of generic political terms and i feel like if there were a candidate who were running with this kind of story in their past like in a high profile race that the republican party would kind of probably try to quietly get him to not run and duck out you know once he was nominated i think that it's sort of like this partisan blood sport where if you if you give it an inch, then you're just letting the other side win, and then they just kind of dug in, you know. So, um, so it's just really reducing it to kind of 
just raw political terms like that, I, I, I think that it, it was kind of, I was surprised that, that he survived the whole process because what has happened now is that you have women who are watching this, maybe even who are apolitical, you know, it, it has this kind of symbolic importance and they remember their stories and their experiences, um, you know, kind of, it becomes bigger than just sort of like this, um, this situation involving two people. So I, I just, you know, we can debate and actually, you know, it's, it's kind of unclear whether this is going to help Democrats or Republicans electorally. Um, you know, we, we do have the 1992 election as an example of a backlash from the whole Nita Hill hearing where a lot of women ran and won. So it's not hard to see that. Um, you know, I think the polling has been mixed so far, and I guess so it's sort of hard to project, predict, but it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be difficult to see it just making um, women voters even kind of more determined to make make a change. Yeah, there's obviously 2018 implications involved there. Does it does it actually galvanize Republicans? I I doubt it. Um, it seems a little far out to galvanize someone for five weeks, you know, right. to an election. I know Republicans are hoping that's the case, and there is yeah, maybe but, some limited evidence of that, you know, but it's unclear. Well, but then, you know, the the common thinking is, you know, if you won, then it's not at top of mind. You move on to the next subject, right. um, you know, for lack of a better term, one. Um, you know, I guess the other question is, it's really two parts. One, does it galvanize women to, you know, vote against these guys who basically, you know, the I think the the craziest thing that I think I saw up there, and if you think about it this way, you have um, a woman who is ostensibly a, you know, a victim. She's a victim reporting a possible crime. Um, and what they do is they brought a prosecutor in. And I mean, just the the idea of having a prosecutor prosecute this victim, I don't know, it's weird. So the what you're referring to is the Republicans seated yeah. their time um, all of the Republican senators ceded their time to a prosecutor who works with specifically on sex crimes mm. um, in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was, it didn't play. Like, it didn't play at all. It felt like the prosecutor was systematically trying to poke holes in Dr. Ford's story and... Christine Blasey Ford completely kept her composure the whole time. Um, and also, like, the fact that, you know, all of these old white men were ceding their time to a woman to, to look better, like, I, optically, it just didn't play. Does this speed up the clip at which women are leaving the Republican Party or at least being swayed more to the Democratic Party? I, I don't know. I don't think anybody can say. You know, when I talked to women about this issue, it it was not sort of in the political sense. It was more in how did you feel watching this? Um, and I think every single woman that I talked to um, described Christine Blasey Ford's testimony as, you know, pretty, pretty gut-wrenching. I don't think you could walk away from listening to her talk about what she said happened to her and not be you know emotionally affected um at the same time the people who um you know were Kavanaugh supporters including Republicans sitting on that committee um you know were compassionate toward you know the trauma that Blasey Ford like obviously experienced 
but at the same time said, you know, we have no evidence that it was Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh says it was not him. Something happened to her, but it wasn't him. And so I don't know whether or not her testimony, which was incredibly, you know, credible, even the president said so, um, whether or not that's going to sway conservative women. I think that there can be empathy toward what happened to her. Um, but I do think the sort of messaging that the Republicans kept their constant refrain was something happened to her, but it wasn't Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh says it wasn't him and we've no evidence that shows that it was him. So I, I don't know. I think it certainly motivated democratic women more, more so than anything since president Trump's election. I, I don't know whether or not this is really going to have an impact on conservative women. I think it's really going to have an impact on just further galvanizing um, d- Democratic women and Democrats in general. It is easy to see it contributing to people being upset with politics in general and uh, just, I think, further giving air to the next whatever candidate comes along and promises to change things. So I guess that's not really different because that's kind of the sort of perpetual environment that we live in. But um but yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to not come away with the whole whole process and be very discouraged. At the same time, I I don't know. I'd be curious for your thoughts. So, this whole situation blew up, you know, in September, um, late September. Um, the Republicans are facing a midterm challenge in in 2018. You know, five weeks away from this thing completely like exploding I mean would they even have time to get another nominee ready to go and confirmed by the time election day comes I mean that has to be in the back of their head I have to believe that was their calculation basically I mean you know especially the way that Mitch McConnell operates I think that sort of the ends justifies the means that they have a 5-2 majority in the court whereas maybe they'd be risking that otherwise Hmm. do we think that it has any specific effect on any of the races here I, I, yeah, you know, again, it, it really comes down to whether it, it, it changes the, the dynamics or not. And like you said, I, I think that's a good point that Republican voters will sort of be happy with the win. Um, Democrat voters will be angry and maybe some, you know, moderate women who are not especially ideological are going to be mad, too. So uh, you have to think that it's not the fight that Republicans would welcome if they want to try to win an election. Um So, you know, it will probably help Democrats. But at the same time, I mean predicting the future is is very hard and i try not to do it like if you're looking at it from the republican perspective right they got their guy on the court you know and that's a huge huge victory and that's why a lot of republicans held their nose and went with trump because they wanted that court seat they wanted that majority i mean they held out on merrick garland for like a year um uh, obama's appointee um and fought tooth and nail to prevent Obama's uh, Supreme Court nominee from even getting a hearing. So this was an in-game for a lot of people. This was bigger than the allegations that Dr. Ford was presenting. This was the conservative chance to make a major impact on the court for decades, and they accomplished that. And I think that's important to a lot of conservative voters. So I think you know, Republicans could could message this as a huge win, and I think it will play, um, you know, with the asterisk that 
Christine Blase Ford. Something happened to that girl, but one Kavanaugh. Um, and that's what Republicans kept saying. Yeah. So again, it, it's hard, you know, I guess I, I'm open to the idea that maybe it fires up the conservative base too. And that kind of neutralizes the already fired up democratic base. But, um, you know, maybe I'm just kind of more conservative and like my temperament. If I were trying to be risk averse, like this is not the fight that I would want to pick. It's kind of like playing with fire and, you know, the the long term ramifications would scare me. So that's that's kind of my take. Do do people in their 20s or teens or, you know, early 30s, do they really even know about the Anita Hill thing? I think it resurfaced and a lot of people learned about it for the first time, um, you know, during these Kavanaugh hearings in the same way that I think a lot of people learned a lot about what was going on in the Clinton administration when they were small children. And I wonder, um, you know, because Clarence Thomas has been on the bench for decades and the Anita Hill thing has sort of fallen because his resume has built over the course of his judicial career. I wonder what ramifications this contentious, angry, divisive uh, confirmation hearing will will have on Brett Kavanaugh. Because the thing is, he's on the court and he's going to be on the court for a really long time. And I'm sure he's going to make his mark on the court. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see like how history views this and, and how much of it clouds or doesn't cloud um, Kavanaugh's term on the Supreme Court. Yeah, the, the short-term political stuff is obviously nothing's easy to predict, but it kind of comes and goes. Um, you know, I think people look back at that election and the conventional wisdom is that it helped contribute to the wave here the Democrats had. But obviously, I think the lasting impact that the Clarence Thomas thing had was that it introduced the idea of sexual harassment into the culture and, you know, is just one of the pieces that we've... I think it, I don't think it introduced it into the culture. I think it was prevalent in the culture, but it put a name to it and a label and people started talking about it. Right. Mm. Yeah. So in that sense, it was a cultural touchstone that has, is one of the the touchstones on the path to where we are today. So I, I think it's helpful to view this stuff as a cultural moment and then... I think that's where the impact is going to be and, and how does it how does it influence our culture and it, it could go any way you know all right that's about all the time we have for today uh before we go um what does everybody want to talk about that they've got coming up uh mary let's start with you um so for the past few months i've been focused on women's issues which is why i um really followed the kavanaugh hearing so closely so you can check out um the work that we're doing at cleveland.com shatter Shatter is a reference to the glass ceiling. <laughs> now you get it. It's hilarious. Um, so, um, so yeah, we've been doing some good work there. And if you are interested in the political implications of this sort of year of the woman type storyline that we're hearing in 2018, or if you're interested in learning more about how workplaces are handling um, the sort of implications of Me Too, um, feel free to check out my stuff. Andrew? We were said earlier, I got the Senate debate coming up on Sunday. If you want to check out our coverage of that, you can you know watch it live, uh, the video and some uh, some hot takes that I might be slinging um, on the broadcast uh, with Spectrum, which is a, you know, well. Pre and post debate analysis, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, catch Andrew in his jacket and tie. Uh, for me, I just published a piece on how, um, you know, while Ridge Cordray and Mike DeWine are seemingly boring, um, 
this race is anything but. So go ahead and check that out. You can see some of the dynamics of the race at play. Um, another quick reminder, early voting has started, so if you would like, be sure to get out there and vote, or you can wait till November 6th and vote on Election Day like I think probably all of us will. I don't know, though. Um, I like to wait. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, me too. I, you know, There's always that surprise right at the end, so I uh, don't want to get caught with that. Actually, we have a, uh, a pretty interesting episode, I think, that's going to be coming up. We're going to be talking to uh, Barb Palmer, a uh, professor from Baldwin-Wallace University. Uh, Mary's kind of set this up, and uh, why don't you just give us a preview of what we can, what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, Barb Palmer um, uh, studies women in politics and has specifically studied women in Ohio politics. Um, Ohio, um, much like the rest of the country, um, does not have um, great representation numbers when it comes to women in elected office. Obviously, in 2018, we're seeing a wave of women run, number one, but a wave of women run and win primaries. Um and so the question is whether or not all these primary victories are going to translate to more legislators actually entering state legislatures and state offices and the House and the Senate um, in Washington. Um, and so she's going to be talking about that. Um, I think the most interesting thing from my perspective and, and what I'm going to sort of be talking to her about is this year of the woman has not really panned out in Ohio. Um, pretty much all of the women who are running for Congress here as challengers or, or women running for an open seat, um, most of them don't don't really stand a huge chance at winning. Um, the incumbents, um, Ohio has three um, female um, members of the House, and they're pretty much safely going to win their districts, I'd say. But the sort of wave of women running in 2018, you know, first time uh not current members of the house um they don't really stand a chance so talking to her a little bit about that um and why women should be in politics all right so be on the lookout for that thank you everybody for listening we appreciate it